Hello. Uh, today on the Loopcast, I have David Kilcullen, and we are discussing the legacy of counterinsurgency and um, on U.S. policy and strategy. So, a little background for our conversation. Um, we wanted, we were interested in doing a series of conversations on critiquing counterinsurgency. Um, and when we got into the research, it just, it just became uninteresting. It just, it became repetitious or prone to sort of um, partisan, partisan feeling. That, that is, the critique was more of a reflection of left and right as opposed to a good analysis. So we left it as is, um, and then we came back to it a couple months ago, and we decided we would take a different step, which was, you know, um, a lot of the strategists, the policymakers, and a lot of um, the people responsible for implementing counterinsurgency are still alive and still young and still active. And we decided, well, why don't we get uh, some of them on the show? Why don't we get somebody like David Kilcullen, a David Petraeus, Emma Skye, uh, Peter Mansour, people who are sort of uh, instrumental in how we think about counterinsurgency, and get them on the show. And instead of doing a critique, have them assess a legacy. So that w what we mean by legacy is it doesn't mean it have to be positive. It doesn't have to be negative. It just has to look at the events of the last 20 years and sort of give us, you know, where we are. Um, and so with that, please welcome uh, David Kilcullen. So, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Of course. Um, I want to start off with where are we today, as an overview, where are we today uh, with counterinsurgency, you know, both in theory and practice? I think a lot of us um, came to counterinsurgency around 2004, 2005, around the idea of clear hold build, um, that, that sort of, that phrase that was, you know, introduced to our, our lexicon. Um, but where are we today in 2017 with, with counterinsurgency? Well, I want to make a bit of a conceptual distinction up front, right? So if you looked at the, doc, at the doctrine for this stuff back in the 1960s, you would have seen a distinction between counter-guerrilla operations and counterinsurgency. And that was a really clear idea in our thinking until about the middle of the 1960s. And this idea was that the military has a very specific defined role, which is to defeat the military part of an insurgency. Conversely, and that's, that's what's called counter-guerrilla. Conversely, there's a whole of government effort that involves diplomats and aid workers and, and so on, and that's much broader. Most of it is not what the military calls kinetic. Or it doesn't involve fighting people. Um, and it's a whole of government role that is owned by the, the government as a whole, not, not just by the military. That distinction became blurred in Vietnam and it was completely lost when we went back to counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we ended up with the military taking on the responsibility for both counter-guerrilla and the civilian parts of counterinsurgency. I've argued in writing a few times, but I'll say it again now, I think that was a really big mistake. Um, and so what we're seeing now is that that's being, it's being decoupled again, and the military is going back to focusing primarily on military tasks, and the, um, the other agencies have yet to really engage with the, uh, the civilian parts of the mission. So that's one distinction. The other distinction to make is 
um, and this is getting a little bit inside baseball here, but there are three things, three terms you hear people talk about: counterinsurgency, foreign internal defence, and security force assistance. Counterinsurgency is what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan during the surges, where we do everything. Right, we're responsible for combat, we're responsible for nation building, we're responsible for training and enablers and all that. Like it's our show. Foreign internal defence is a very old, old um, special forces mission where we just put a very small number of people on the ground who are only responsible for advising, assisting, and training, and they don't carry the main combat burden. And then SFA, or Security Force Assistance, is kind of somewhere in between. It's where we do advice and assistance, we do some enablers, but we're not in charge and we're not carrying the main combat burden. So basically the U.S. got out of the counterinsurgency business at the end of the Afghan surge in 2013 or so. And we're not back in that business. So there's no U.S. is not running full-spectrum counterinsurgencies anywhere in the world right now. What we're doing is security force assistance in Iraq and Syria. We're doing security force assistance in um, uh, in Afghanistan. And basically the U.S. military has, is trying desperately to get out of the business entirely and get it back to something that looks more like the the 1980s in El Salvador or something where you have a small number of specialists and that's what they do. Uh, and many people are just focused on conventional fighting. Um, so with that in mind, there's a lot of counterinsurgency going on, on the world, in the world. It's just we're not doing it. It's being done by local partners and we are doing foreign internal defence or security force assistance. And meanwhile, there's this whole debate going on that you guys are well aware of within the government about the whole experience of counterinsurgency since 2006 and what that tells us, sorry, and whether we should be trying to avoid it forever or, you know, what, what the, what the future lessons are. Interesting. So then I'm kind of interested in, in when we discuss counterinsurgency, foreign internal defense, there's also this line of counterterrorism. How do we incorporate <coughs> counterterrorism to this, I mean, because it seems like the modern interpretation of counterterrorism is almost fundamentally at, at odds. That you have highly kinetic drone strikes, um, you know, special operations, whatever, compared to, you know, sitting, you know, a long-term sort of assistance program, security security forces assistance program. So, how do we sort of incorporate counterterrorism to our thinking here? Well, counterterrorism, in a conceptual sense, is is different. It it well, ca so counterinsurgency as an academic discipline, as a, as a theory of war, you know, emerged in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties in the process of European loss of empire, where the European empires were disintegrating, and there was a lot of decolonization conflicts, and you know, Malaya, Vietnam, Indochina, Algeria, the Philippines, you know, that, that's where that comes from. Um, at that time, you know, back in the 60s, we used to call insurgents terrorists and terrorist insurgents, and we didn't really make a clear distinction. A terrorist is just someone who uses terror to achieve a particular outcome. After the Munich Olympic Games siege in 1972, a whole new academic discipline began to emerge in the West called terrorism studies and later called counterterrorism, largely focused on urban, asymmetric small networks of people doing um, 
violence in order to achieve political gains through through terror. And that became its own whole uh, institutional discipline in, in academia. Um, special forces organisations emerged like Delta Force and SAS in the Commonwealth who were really focused on, you know, trying to make sure that there was never going to be another Munich Olympic disaster. Um, so it became kind of bifurcated. Then after 9-11, it all came back together again, and we started framing large-scale counterinsurgency activity within the framework of a global counterterrorism effort. That global counterterrorism effort is still there, but it's largely done by very specialised ground forces, you know, SEALs and, and Delta. It's done by some civilian agencies, obviously, and then it's done with drone strikes. Um, in the business, we don't really talk about it in the same way. I mean, we talk about asymmetric actors um, who carry out asymmetric attacks like bombings and assassinations and Mumbai siege, and then we talk about insurgent or guerrilla groups, and they are actually quite different, and they require really different solutions. Um, and, of course, obviously enough, quite often those solutions don't work. You know, So I think the... Um, for those that are in the media or in government without who don't do this for a living, counterterrorism is sort of seen as somewhat different from counterinsurgency. People that are in the business actually don't really use those terms very much. We tend to talk about um, direct action against terrorist groups. We talk about, um, as I said, foreign internal defense and security force assistance, uh, and we focus on the sort of program level of what is being carried out. And the rest of it is sort of more of an academic debate right now. So what do you, um, what do you see as the ideal outcome? I think um, in the, and so from 2003 to now, we've been presented with multiple political outcomes. So with the Bush administration, it was um, democracy in the Middle East. I'm simplifying, of course. And then with the Obama administration, it seems to be, it seemed to be that we're going to reduce our commitments. And then with the Trump administration, um, I don't, to be honest, I, I can't really suss out what their political goal is. Um, but in, in your mind, what is sort of the ideal outcome for security forces assistance, direct action? What is the, you know, the ideal outcome here, political or otherwise? Well, I mean, I, I'm going to answer this with a, with an, uh, a narrative. So the, the classic example that people often use is the Malayan emergency. It's supposed to be the first major example of counterinsurgency being done the way that we want to see it done. Um, and if you look at the history books, that'll tell you that the Malayan emergency ran from 1948 to 1960. So it took 12 years. And at the end of that period, the insurgents were defeated and, you know, the, the Federation of Malaysia turned into Malaysia and was was stable and has never been threatened with being overthrown since. Actually, when I was a lieutenant in 1989, Australia still had an airbase in northern Malaysia. It still had a company of troops out patrolling on the ground. The New Zealand Army had a battalion in Singapore. Um, we still had really significant ongoing engagement 30 years after the theoretical end of that conflict. And, um, you know, there was still 500 or so communist terrorists, as they were called, who insurgents, 
out on the grounds in northern Malaysia and southern Thailand as late as 1989. So 30 years after the theoretical, theoretical end of that conflict, there was still an insurgent group the same size as the whole IRA operating in northern Malaysia. But at no time after 1956 or so did it threaten the existence of the state of Malaysia. So this is a good example. And by the way, they finally surrendered at the end of 1989, not because of anything that happened in Malaysia, but because of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So world events that had nothing to do with um, our ongoing engagement. So the way that it typically works, the outcome that we're looking for in a counterinsurgency is we drive the enemy threat down to a level where the local government and local security forces can handle it. We build up the local civilian government and the local um, counter local security forces, police and military, to the point where they can handle the threat. And then, you know what? They just handle it. And that might take 30 years, it might take 50 years, it might go forever. But um, we no longer are required to have a very large-scale presence in that country. We can downscale from full-scale counterinsurgency to something that looks like security force assistance to eventually foreign internal defence to eventually a just a standard military relationship with an ally. So the idea is that it's almost like taking antibiotics, right? You take antibiotics when you feel sick, but you don't stop taking them when you feel better. You keep taking them for a significant amount of time until you finish that course of antibiotics and eventually the you know, you've eradicated the underlying um, infection. And that's pretty much what happens in counterinsurgency. There's not a dramatic defeat of the enemy and then we all go home for medals. What happens is you drive the threat down to the, where the locals can handle it and then they just handle it. Um, and and that's, you know, that's part of the problem of what we did in Iraq was to say we've driven the threat down to a level that's manageable, so let's just leave. And then, of course, when we left and... ISIS came back, that was like a relapse or like being reinfected because you stopped taking your antibiotics too early. Um, and so to extend that, send that medical analogy, a lot of people responded to the rise of ISIS in Iraq by saying, well, that just proves that counterinsurgency doesn't work. I would say, one, what do you mean by counterinsurgency? That's like saying architecture doesn't work or engineering doesn't work, right? A counterinsurgency campaign is thousands of individual interventions um, that all have to work right, that are just the same as government programs generally, and there's not one single bullet, but or silver bullet. But then the other point that I would make is if you do something and the situation improves dramatically and then you stop doing it and things get bad, it doesn't mean that what you were doing wasn't working. It means it was working and you shouldn't have stopped, right? And I think part of it is about this conceptual conceptualization of what is counterinsurgency. It's not a single set of techniques that you come in and you apply and that solves the problem. It's a method of getting the threat down and your local partner up to the point where the locals can handle it. But it is going to require ongoing hand-holding after the immediate crisis passes in order to make that thing sustainable um, long-term. I've got another point to add, but I'll, I'll stop there so you can react Okay, so I want to maybe switch footing to taking what you just laid out for us and then applying it to uh, sort of more broader questions. And, and the first question I think you've already touched on, which is 
what happens when you have a successful counterinsurgency campaign and that results in more extremism and more terrorism? I think you, you've already touched on the, on the rise of ISIS, but <clears throat> it seems, you know, sort of within this question is also the idea of how do you balance domestic political concerns? So politics in the United States versus sort of ongoing success in a counterinsurgency campaign. Because it seems like, you know, in 2008, we signed the Status Forces of Agreement in um, Iraq, 2007-2008. We withdraw, and then we have, you know, with the Arab Spring, we also have, occurring in Syria, we have the rise of ISIS. And how do we, you know, how do we sort of balance domestic political concerns with, you know, waging a successful counterinsurgency campaign, and then also with the concern of, you know, if, if this campaign isn't waged enough or well enough, then that results in, you know, increased extremism and terrorism. Well, I think there's a number of points there, right? So one of them is um, sort of the implied question here is what do Americans expect from a counterinsurgency campaign, right? Um, and I, I, I hear a lot of people talking about how Americans are peace-loving and, you know, they don't want to, uh, they're, they're tired of war and all those kinds of things. I mean, I'm an American citizen now, but I came obviously from another country originally, and I don't, I don't that's not what I see. I don't think Americans are peace-loving, and I don't think that they are war-weary. I think what Americans hate is losing. Um, and they also don't like to see casualties when there's no sign of progress. Um, one of the reasons why people got comfortable with what was going on in Iraq in 2008, 2009 is we were still there, but we weren't losing a lot of people. We were, you know, we dramatically reduced by like about a 96% level, the number of people we were losing in about a three-month period. And then for the rest of our engagement in Iraq, we were lucky to lose, or un, we were unlucky to lose one guy a month, you know. Um, so that... Um, that's still tragic, but it's, you know, it was 110, 120 people a month at the height of the surge. So getting it down to a low level of, um, of losses meant that people sort of, you know, forgot about it. Um, the other point that I, that, you know, people often say to me, it's impossible for us to sustain a long-term effort in Afghanistan. Like it's going to break the bank. We can't afford to have 12,000 troops in Afghanistan forever. We can't afford to be spending money on this forever it just you know it's it, it's not sustainable and of course there's a single one word reply to that and that word is korea right i mean we've had between 30 and 50,000 us troops in korea ever since 1945 we had ever since the end of the korean war we've had 30 to 50,000 troops permanently garrisoned in korea it hasn't broken the bank in fact it's actually cheaper to keep those guys in korea then bring them back to the United States. We're not losing people. That's why it's sustainable, right? We're not having guys killed in Korea. Now, obviously, Korea is not a great example this month because it's having all kinds of problems. But for the last 70 years, most Americans, if you'd have said to somebody, hey, how many troops do we have in Korea? They wouldn't even know we have a big garrison there. It hasn't been a big political issue. It's been quite sustainable. So the idea for somewhere like Afghanistan or Iraq is and always has been to translate battlefield military success into ongoing political stability 
and a low enough level of casualties that basically we can just sustain it on a on an on a indefinite basis. And that's not what people want to hear, but that's the reality. I mean, that's how Korea worked out. That's what happened in Malaya. That's that's what's normal. Um, and I I think that leads to this uh, back into the the coin debate because you know you read a guy like General Bolger wrote a book called Why We Failed. Um, I like him a lot. I, I know him from Afghanistan and Iraq, but I do disagree with some of the conclusions in the book because who's we in that sentence, right? The failures that he's talking about are civilian failures, uh, failures of the ability to translate military success on the battlefield into long-term stabilization. And General Bolger draws the conclusion that the military can't do counterinsurgency. I actually draw a totally different conclusion, which is the problem here is not that the military can't do the military parts of counterinsurgency. The problem is that the nation has been unable to translate military success into political outcomes that we're looking for. And frankly, that is not unique to counterinsurgency. We've seen that in Syria. We're probably going to see it in, um, you know, the next phase in Ukraine and in elsewhere. You know, so it's, it's a problem of decoupling of national strategy and what the civilian agencies do from what we ask of the military and putting so much on the military without giving it the tools or the resources is one problem, but you don't solve that by giving lots more resources to the military and saying, this is your problem. You solve it by having civilian agencies and civilian leaders who are actually committed to the effort and understand what they're trying to achieve to the specific case of, of ISIS. Um, Again, this is, I think, not a problem of counterinsurgency technique, which is about the how. It's a problem relating to the original sin of early 2003, which was invading Iraq. Um, If we had not invaded Iraq, there would be no ISIS today. If we hadn't invaded Iraq, we probably would have destroyed al-Qaeda by now. Um, The problem is not a partisan problem. Uh, It's partly that... That President Bush invaded Iraq, but it's also that President Obama left Iraq before the problem was dealt with and um, ISIS was able to come back. So I think this this really comes back to a question of national strategy and figuring out, you know, what are we trying to do here and why are we doing it as distinct from how are we doing it? Counterinsurgency is an example of a how question. Invading Iraq is the ultimate why question. Why the hell did we do that? Right? And, and why did we think that that was going to make things better? And now that it's made things works, worse, what are we going to do next? And once you answer those questions, then you have a range of options going forward. And one of those options might be counterinsurgency, um, but maybe not. Right? Maybe there are other things that you might want to do. And only at that point does it become relevant how to do coin. Right? That's, a, that's a sort of technical execution question rather than a strategic question of what are we trying to do. On the topic of Syria, um, I'm kind of interested in, in getting your thoughts on comparing the United States' approach in dealing with ISIS in Syria versus Russia and Iran. I think when when we discuss counterinsurgency within the United States' context, you know, we there's not a lot of success to go on, so to speak, in the sense of, um, you know, popular analysis tends to veer towards, you know, we it's a sort of not the best outcome, but whereas, you know, we're watching Russia and Iran conduct a counterinsurgency campaign in Syria, and they seem to be much more 
successful, or at least the feeling is that it's much more successful in the sense of achieving political goals and standing up the Assad regime. So then my question is, when we discuss translating military progress into political outcomes, you know, is it, where do we, how do we place other nation states within that, within the, that idea of, you know, using, well, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, sorry. no, no, I, I'm just, it just seems like that Russia and so Iran, you could, your, oh. your general question is, is are we doing, uh, is our experience typical of other countries or are other countries doing better than we are, right? Is that your, that, your question? That's the general idea, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, um, look, there have been a number of very successful examples of counterinsurgency globally. Many of them involve levels of brutality against the population that are just unacceptable to us, right? We are not going to go there. We're not going to do to the population of Syria or of Iraq or any other country what the Russians and the Iranians have done in those places. Actually, that's not the worst example. I'd I'd argue that what the Sri Lankans did to the Tamil population in 2009 in Sri Lanka um, was hugely successful in crushing the Tamil Tigers. But it's a set of techniques that are not open to us because we don't we don't operate like that. Um, and so within the constraints that we have self-imposed, which are largely ethical and legal, the, we, are, we are doing about as well as anyone has ever done globally on this kind of activity. Um, there are other ways to do it, right? You can, you can do what Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, did in the 1980s, and you can kill 40,000 people in a three-week period, and most of them were civilians, and, or all of them are civilians, and you can crush an insurgency that way. We don't do that. Um, and so if we're going to step aside from those levels of brutality, this is sort of the, the, the best option. Um, and it is, in fact, you know, what we're doing is, is better than most other people that I'm aware of have, have ever achieved in this, in this area. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a false debate that you hear. Um, I'm sure you've heard people say you can't kill your way to victory or um, torture doesn't work. Um, look, I'm here to tell you that the historical data doesn't support that argument, right? You absolutely can kill your way to victory. Um, but we don't do that. We don't do it not because it doesn't work. We don't do it because it's wrong, right? We do. It's an ethical choice that we make not to be Hafez al-Assad or to be the Nazis on the Eastern Front or the Russians in Chechnya, right? That's an ethical choice that we make. And frankly, I'm very happy with that choice because if we didn't make that choice, our, our cause wouldn't be worth fighting, you know? So um, when you make that sort of top level choice to not go there, you're then left with a series of options that the Russians and the Iranians don't worry about because they have no problem barrel bombing civilians, right? Which we do. Well, I mean, in you know, I hate saying this, but ethics aside, it seems when we talk about strategy and sort of political outcome creation that the the Syrians and the, uh, the Russians and the Iranians seem to create their goals around something that's a, a, achievable, sort of standing up the Assad regime. Whereas, you know, going through the research for this, for this conversation, our, you know, our political goals, the United States' political goals seem to be at least with Iraq, it was, you know, creating a democratic 
Iraq or, you know, it, it, it seems like when we talk about strategy and, and its relation to political outcomes, that when we look at Iran and, Ru and Russia, you know, they, they seem to be able to create something that is achievable within their means, whereas with the United States, it just seems like when it came to counterinsurgency, we created these goals that, you know, that didn't really relate military progress to political outcomes very well. So you, you know, well, how, how again, I, yeah, oh, I would just, yeah, I would just say, look, that I, I fully agree with you that we had ridiculously ambitious political goals in both of those campaigns, Iraq and Afghanistan. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I would just say a couple of things. One, the goals in Afghanistan weren't actually developed by the United States. They were developed in the Bonn Conference, which was the UN and a bunch of European countries in the year 2001, 2002, which the US sent a rep to but didn't participate fully. And um, I, would, I would say most Americans that I've ever spoken to have always thought that those goals that were stated in the Bonn Agreement were just way optimistic and, and too... Um, just, you know, overreach for Afghanistan. In Iraq, the initial goal, I agree, was was ridiculously over-optimistic to turn Iraq into a beacon of democracy and hope for the rest of the region and thereby transform the threat to Israel and, and to the United States. The practical goals that we've all had ever since the intervention were much simpler and lesser than that, which was literally just to make it stable enough that we could leave. Um, and so whatever the window dressing about democracy promotion in Iraq, the practical goals on the ground ever since about the middle of 2004 have just been to get the hell out of there and, and in order to do that, realising that we had to make it as as stable as possible and democracy was part of that. Um, so I think, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are great examples of over-optimistic goal setting and then people having to adjust, adjust to that. I'll make one other point. In neither Afghanistan nor Iraq, did the policymakers who came up with those goals think that it was going to be a counterinsurgency or did they plan for a counterinsurgency? So going into Afghanistan, it was planned as a peacekeeping mission. Most of the countries that signed up in 2002 to the Bonn Agreement didn't think they were going to do counterinsurgency. They thought they were just going to do something like what happened in Bosnia. And in fact, at that time, there was no Quetashura, right? The Quetashura, which is the leading um, group within the Taliban, wasn't even formed until October of 2003. There was a whole three or four year period where there was no significant insurgency in Afghanistan and it was a peacekeeping mission. It changed in 2004, 2005 um, and the counterinsurgency came later after those goals had already been set by a bunch of people who thought it was going to be peacekeeping. Likewise in Iraq, right, there was never any plan for counterinsurgency in Iraq. We, Myself and a bunch of other people that do counterinsurgency for a living were strong opponents of the invasion precisely because we were arguing there's going to be an insurgency and you're not prepared to handle it. And we were literally told to shut up and sit down, you know, by people who said, we'll be welcomed as liberators, there won't be an insurgency, don't you worry your pretty little heads about that problem, it's all going to be fine. And then when we got on the ground and the insurgency developed, for the first year we weren't even allowed to use the word insurgency. It was banned in the Pentagon by, by Secretary Rumsfeld. Um, only much later, when they realised that it was getting out of hand, did they finally turn back to the group of us that had warned them against going in there in the first place and say, hey, hey, guys, you know, can you help us out? Um, so, you know, the people that set those goals 
arguably should be held to account for why they completely ignored the expert advice they were given and decided to just do it anyway. Um, but separately from that, and really the only country that's really done that is the Chilcot Review in the UK where they've actually addressed those questions. In the US, the big decision makers on that have largely got off scot-free. Um, and I, I think that's a significant problem. In Afghanistan, it's a bit different because it's much more diffuse responsibility, right? All the countries that participated in the Bonn Agreement plus the UN and a bunch of other people were involved in setting those ridiculously over-optimistic goals. Um, and the US wasn't as clearly at fault uh, in that as it was in Iraq. So I want to, uh, while we're on the topic of, of Iraq and Syria, I want to sort of switch footing to um, counterterrorism in the sense of um, from 2003 to now, the nature of terrorism, well, not the nature of terrorism, but the nature of radicalization, how somebody um, becomes violent has sort of has changed. Um, and so you know, the story of, of Baghdadi, of the head of ISIS, was that he, you know, was essentially led into the path of violence through the invasion of Iraq, goes to Syria, but now ISIS's method of radicalization involves a lot of using the internet, Telegram, Facebook, Twitter. So my, my question is, is when we discuss counterinsurgency campaigns and its relationship to counterterrorism, you know, how do we balance presence, being over in Syria, being in Iraq versus, um, you know, engaging in counterterrorism that actually effectively, you know, counters, counters terror in the sense of, you know, the how, you know, radicalization, how people engage in violence has changed? Well, I think we've seen a number of evolutions in the terrorist threat since 9-11. Um, and probably the best way to uh, address that is talking about those changes. So you think about the 9-11 attacks. 19 people came in secretly into the United States, carried out training, and then mounted the major 9-11 terrorist attack. That was what you might call expeditionary terrorism, right? They, they raised the team in one location, trained it in another, snuck it into its target country and carried out the attack. By the time of the 7-7 London bombings in 2005, we started to see the emergence of a new approach, which we call guerrilla terrorism, where instead of sneaking 19 people in secretly, they brought one guy out openly, a guy called Muhammad Siddiqui Khan, who travelled to Pakistan, was trained there, went back on his own passport, under his own name, back into the UK, and then he trained a team close to the target, which carried out the, the London bombing. So we saw this guerrilla approach where teams are grown close to the close to the the target and you don't have to sneak uh, specialist teams in to do the attack. Second big thing we've seen is leaderless resistance and um, some people call it leaderless jihad, uh, which is really an idea that comes from right-wing extremist groups in the United States. But the idea is that you, you don't have a clandestine network, you don't have a two-way communication of secret information which security forces could discover. What you have is a one-way broadcast of here are some techniques, here are some approaches, here's a list of targets, and then you expect people to do sort of lone wolf, self-organized attacks to execute that, um, that, that set of goals. Um, that idea came out of the right-wing groups in the US in the 80s. It was picked up by al-Qaeda. It's been really refined by ISIS. 
And that's the latest thing where many of these attacks that ISIS claims were not directed by them in any meaningful sense. They were just inspired and ISIS publish how to do an attack with a vehicle, how to do a knife attack, how to do a pressure cooker bomb. You know, they, they publish these techniques and they issue lists of targets and they just let people self-organize. That's the second thing. Third thing that's happened is the urban siege where instead of doing bombings and drive-by assassinations, really from about 2008 with the Mumbai attacks, we've started to see much more of a focus on seizing and holding large urban installations for a long period of time to generate the maximum impact on uh, on the society. And that's become really uh, a key part of what um, guys do. And then the final thing is this move from high-end, sophisticated attacks using complex explosive devices to low-tech attacks, you know, running car, using cars to run people down, knife attacks, um, you know, sort of low-tech ad hoc attacks. And one of the problems with that is that that really invalidates a lot of our traditional counterterrorism approaches, right, which are largely about um, penetrating secret networks, figuring out what, what they're going to do, getting ahead of the curve and then preventing them. I'll use one example from Australia. In September of 2014, a kid went to a mosque on Friday afternoon, 14-year-old boy, um, got riled up, got, got decided to take action, went home, grabbed his uncle's gun and went to a police station and start shooting, started shooting and a police civilian was, was killed. Um, there's no way for a traditional counterterrorism approach to stop that attack because the shooter himself doesn't even know he's going to do the attack until two hours beforehand. There's no way to stop it. It doesn't work like that. It's a whole different model now of counter-radicalization, de-radicalization, working with communities to identify the people that are at risk, and also a sort of big data approach to saying, don't look at the possible terrorist perpetrator, look at the geography, look at the hotel or the police station or the, the shopping mall and try to see um, what the changes are in, in what we can see that might indicate that an attack is about to happen. So counterterrorism has really shifted. But I, I want to, again, go back to a point I made earlier, which is counterterrorism and counterinsurgency are not the same thing. They're quite different and they are really driven by the nature of the enemy that you're approaching. Unfortunately, the war on terror construct that was put in place after 9-11 has really blurred that distinction, you know, and so there's a lot of very woolly thinking going on uh, that conflates terrorism with insurgency and conflates counterinsurgency, counter which is just a technique, with our strategy since 9-11, which is a set of policy choices, with this idea of a war on terrorism, which was really just a label for that set of strategies. So I think we've got to sort of be really clear about exactly what are we talking about. So I want to switch footing again. Um, and for, for our last question, I think a lot of us are sort of curious about what happens when there's a failure in creating a political outcome. So you mentioned, you know, the idea that we have a garrison in Korea, that for the last... 60 years, we've had 30,000 troops in Korea, sort of in, sh and, you know, the, the broader mission seems to be, you know, acting as a deterrent, you know, a North Korean deterrent, and then sort of keeping peace on the peninsula. Um, but, it, but by that same token, I want to use that analogy. And, you know, in Korea, South Korea has developed into a democracy, has developed into an economic powerhouse, whereas, 
you know, the failure to create a political outcome, especially in Afghanistan, seems to be, it's just very Sophisian. So I went through, to, to sort of, to do research, I went through my uh, SIGAR, my S-I-G-A-R, I think it's SIGAR, mm-hmm. sort yep. of, um, their, their press releases, didn't even read the papers. And the press releases going back five years are, the, the biggest theme for five years has been failure to create Afghan security forces. So we're dumping $450 million approximately a year in developing security forces, which never seems to develop. And it just seems like, you know, there there is no political, there is no footway to a political outcome in Afghanistan. And it just seems to be sort of very circular. And I think the, the, the ongoing joke on Twitter is that, um, I hate repeating the Twitter joke, but um, it's it's basically forever war. It's that there there is no there there's a failure to create a political outcome. You know, let's try again. There's another failure, and it just keeps going. And, and to your point earlier point, it is. I mean, it is. It seems to be a, a very low violence situation. I mean, you're not. You know, hundreds of soldiers aren't dying a day, but rather. There, there's no achievement of a larger political goal, however understood or stated for Afghanistan. So, you know, my question well, is, I, yeah, I'm, you know, yeah. well, look, I, I think your criticism in the case of Afghanistan is fully justified, right? We haven't, um, we haven't made sufficient progress towards the goals that we've laid out. Partly that's because those goals are very optimistic, but also it's because um, we've been, optimizing to get out rather than optimizing to solve the problem. Um, and so that has been part of the issue. And also there's been some disagreement about what problem exactly are we trying to solve, right? I remember when I was working in Afghanistan in 2012, um, I had an engagement with a Canadian aid agency uh, representative and she said, you know, our goal here, you, you guys are trying to work on counter-corruption, but our goal is to expand, expand the reach of the Afghan government because we think that that's the way we get out of here. And I said, right, but if you're expanding the reach of a government that everybody hates that's corrupt, then you're just making it worse, right? The better you do it, your strategy, the worse it's going to get. So we have to deal with corruption as the prime problem and the oppression of, of particular groups in Afghan society by other groups is, is really what's driving a lot of it. Um, so I think you're quite justified in your argument about Afghanistan. But I would make a point about Korea to emphasize that these things take a long time. And part of the problem here is that we're in a hurry and we haven't fully understood um, the nature of what we're engaged in. So Korea, yeah, it looks, it's kind of messy now, but for the last 10, 20 years, it's been an economic powerhouse and a democracy and all that. That's true. But, you know, Korea was a military dictatorship from the late 50s until 1993. Um, It was not an economic powerhouse until the, the 1970s. There was an entire North Korean insurgency inside South Korea through most of the 50s. Even in the late 1990s, there were North Korean raiders coming in and and attacking people, and there was kidnappings and a bunch of other problems going on in Korea. So Korea was not um, a quick fix where we suddenly ended the war and we got to a a position of economic and democratic progress. It took a generation to get to that point. And again, that's what happened in Malaysia. In Malaysia, similarly, you still have some very significant human rights and economic problems in Malaysia. And, um, you know, these things go on for for a very long period of time. So I think we do want to see much more progress towards 
outcomes in a place like Afghanistan, but we've got to be realistic that these things take time. And by time, I mean 30 to 50 years, right? They don't happen in five years. Um, and what a lot of what your counterinsurgency technique is about is about buying yourself that time, right? And But the point is the military's job is to suppress the insurgency to buy time for civilian agencies to do their, their stuff. If the civilian agencies don't do what they're supposed to do, or if the local government isn't invested in the solution, then all your military guys are doing is, you know, putting a finger in the dike and waiting for somebody else to do that. And ultimately, I think that's not fair to the military, right? And we need to say, look, if we're going to do these kinds of operations, we've got to put in the effort on the civilian side to ensure that our military efforts are not in vain. And we have to have realistic expectations, but we also have to be working hard to achieve those expectations. Um, and, you know, I, I think the way to deal with the forever war problem, which is a real problem, is actually to step back and say, look, we're still working on an authorization for the use of military force that was passed in 2002 in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, before there was an ISIS, before the current situation with al-Qaeda existed as it does in Europe, before we saw the Syrian civil war, we're using that authorization of military force for something it was never intended to be. And I think Congress has to step up and take charge of that and say, you know, you know what, we're not going to just give you guys a forever blank check. We're going to go back and revisit that. And that's something that's been a failure of Congress, but also a failure of successive administrations, right? It's not a partisan comment, right? The Bush administration, Obama administration, and now the Trump administration have all made the same errors. And we need to step back from that and say, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or whether you're independent, it should be obvious to you that what we've been doing since 9-11 isn't working. So let's go back to the drawing board and think about how to do it differently. So for our, for my last question, I'm sort of curious the relationship of pursuing counterinsurgency operations to conventional warfare. Mm -hmm. So uh, we earlier this week we had a conversation with Michael Kaufman on Russian strategy in Eastern Europe and its overall strategy. Um, and so what I did for the, the interview, I drew timelines. So I said in 2002 to 2017, America has been involved in various counterinsurgencies, uh, foreign security development operations in Iraq, Syria, East Africa, Afghanistan. By the same token, when you draw that, that same line out, that timeline for Russian foreign policy, and you see that Russia has become this resurgent near-peer adversary. So uh, reformation of their military, of their security forces, um, attacks on Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine, and then also their involvement in Syria. So my, 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 my question is, um, are we, is the United States prepared to switch footing from this counterinsurgency stance to conventional near-peer stance to deal with uh, adversaries like Russia, like China, even, I mean, North Korea. I mean, is it is it possible to do that switch from counterinsurgency to conventional warfare, or have we sort of, you know, you know, been left in a lurch, so to speak, that in the sense of, you know, there's we have to switch all the lessons and everything over to conventional warfare. How does that work? Well, I think. Um 
so, I mean, first of all, just on the Russians, um, you know, Russia is not a near peer. Um, you know, they're the 12th largest country in the world by GDP. Um, you know, Australia, it goes South Korea, Russia, Australia, Spain, right? Um, and Australia is very slightly behind Russia. So I don't think Australia would be considered to be a near peer of the United States. Um, neither is Russia on an economic basis. The Russians don't really have the military capability that they've been putting forward. They, the, the whole naval expansion process had to be put in mothballs because they couldn't get their carriers to work and they don't have the money to refurbish the platforms. They've almost run out of precision-guided munitions in what they've been doing in, in Syria. One of the reasons why they're killing so many civilians is they don't have the smart munitions that, that we have. Um, they've talked about building a new fleet of advanced armoured vehicles, but uh, actually they had to put that on hold earlier this year because they um, just weren't able to afford it, right? So the, the Russians are not necessarily the 10-foot-tall bogeyman that people have made out. What they are is very smart at making use of what they've got. And we have tended to respond to most of these conflicts since 2001 by just throwing money at them. When you don't have the money to throw at something, you have to actually think about how to approach it. And the Russians have been very smart about how they've used a lot more limited uh, resources. We, I think, let them become the threat that they are now, largely through our failure to act in Syria. Syria is the key to Russia's resurgence in the Middle East and related later on our failure to act in um, Crimea and Ukraine. But it really goes back to 2011-2012. And again, you know, you can be partisan and you can blame the Obama administration for sitting on its hands and letting, you know, all that happen. But I think, frankly, whether it was a Republican or a Democrat administration, you probably would have had the same outcome. I, I don't think you can really blame one individual with perhaps with the exception of the red line fiasco in 2013 in Syria, where we called our own bluff and showed that there was no, nothing to fear by going up against the United States. But again, I I think it's the wrong, it's the wrong tack to say that there's a partisan angle here. It was just that we were focused on other things. And basically from 2001 until about 2014, as your question implies, we were focused on just terrorism and we really didn't, think enough about state and and other types of threats i think since 2014 we've been forced back to reality to say oh hang on you know there's this holiday from history that we've had while we just worried about fighting terrorists actually there are still threats out there and and we need to deal with everything from north korea to to um china china to russia to a variety of competitors many of whom are not military threats but we need to think about them in that way Actually, there are people in the Army and the Air Force and the Navy who have been thinking about this stuff ever since 9-11, and I think there are, there's been some very good thinking. The Army has a concept called multi-domain manoeuvre. Um, the, the Air Force and Navy have an air-sea battle concept. There's been a lot of work done about countering anti-access and area denial um, conflict capability of other actors. So I think, you know, I would just say anybody that discounts the United States as a conventional force does so at their peril. You know, I, th- I think U.S. is really very, very, very much the most capable country on the planet as far as conventional warfighting capability goes today, um, even compared to, you know, how it was 10 years ago. 
Um, but I do think that, again, getting back to the Russians, if you, you don't have to compete with the Americans globally in every place at the same time. You just need to pick areas where you can focus effort and it's what we call economy of force in military thinking. You don't try to be dominant everywhere. You just pick areas where you can achieve local dominance for the specific time frame when it matters and then you move on. And I think that's where we need to be focused. It's not that somebody could overwhelm the United States conventionally. It is that we need to be ready and reactive and able to move quickly to prevent things or to respond quickly so that they don't achieve a local advantage, which we then have trouble um, counteracting. The other thing, of course, that a lot of people are worried about is what if we accidentally get into a nuclear war with the Koreans because our president can't control his impulses and their president is a lunatic, you know, and, and how what happens there? Frankly, I'm worried about that too. Um, I think that, you know, the, the stability of decision makers is fundamental here and we're, we're in uncharted territory now as far as the, the, the North Korean uh, nuclear standoff goes. Uh, but, again, that's not a conventional fight. That would be a nuclear conflict and that's a whole different ball of wax. So I think we, we've covered a lot of ground today. And so for our last question, we always like to leave our audience with something to think about. Um, so if you can, just leave us you know, a thought, an idea, something that, that we can leave this conversation, you know, thinking about it later. Well, look, I, I want to go back to something we talked about earlier, which is the fact that we make choices based on morality, right? Um, and, um, you know, obviously, even in the United States, we don't always make the right choice and there are, there are mistakes and so on. But, um, I think one of the, one thing that Americans need to ask themselves is if these are the constraints that we put on ourselves and if these constraints come from our own ethics and our own legal framework and our way of life, we are probably never going to move away from those constraints. So if you regard constraints that we're dealing with as fixed constraints, the real question for Americans becomes, you know, how much are we willing to put into sustaining the global order as it currently exists versus at what point do we say, you know what, it, it's not worth the cost anymore. We need to step back and accept a different role globally. I think that's the question that lurks behind the difference of opinion between President Obama and President Trump, for example, or it lurks behind the difference of opinion between Rand Paul and other people that don't want us to be engaged in a sort of imperial relationship with others and the neocon group who say you know we want to be global internationalists and we are the indispensable nation and we need to do what we can to sustain um the international order i think this is the real question right i mean counterinsurgency matters only because it's a technique that we came up with to achieve a set of national strategic goals that have been around ever since 1945 i think the question to think about here is you know we know how to do counterinsurgency the question is, do we want to do it now, given the costs? And is it something that we think makes sense for the country's long-term national interests? And is it something that actually gets the world to a better place or are we actually making things worse? Uh, and I think that's a big, big political question as well as a big moral and ethical question. I'm a technical guy. It's not on me to answer that. You know, you don't want your technical experts answering that question. That's the sort of question that political leaders need to answer based on the elected 
you know, the opinion of, of the electorate. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to get that answer under President Trump, uh, unfortunately, but I reckon that what's happening with the Trump administration well, may well mean that whoever gets elected next time around has to answer these questions on a much more urgent kind of basis. So, yeah, the thought that I would leave you with is, you know, leaving aside the how question of how do you do it, let's go back to that why question. Why are we doing this? Do we think it's good long term? And if we're going to be constrained by the morals and the ethical choices we make, which I think we should be, what does that leave us in terms of options going forward? Well, that's a lot to think about. Um, well, um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, that was uh, David Kilcullen. Um, we will post the show in um, in a couple days. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course.